This podcast is brought to you by Recontract, the leading software to automate your reconditioning process. From vehicles to people to parts, Recontract streamlines every touchpoint in your recon process. Visit recontract.com an to learn more. That's R-E-C-O-N-T-R-A-C dot slash A-N. Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, March 9th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, GM offers buyouts to most of its salaried workers in the U.S. Car dealer optimism is on the rise, and Nissan sees a clear path toward EV price parity. Plus, tensions are growing between automakers and dealers at state capitals around the country. It's really a slate of issues kind of across the spectrum, but really getting at, as one dealer lawyer told me, this idea of wanting to assert independence of the dealer from the manufacturer. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. General Motors is offering buyouts to most of its U.S. salaried employees as it works to cut $2 billion in costs over the next two years. The Detroit automaker is offering voluntary severance packages to U.S. employees who have been with the company for at least five years and global executives with at least two years of service. That's according to a memo that CEO Mary Barra sent to employees today. Barra wrote that the program is, quote, designed to accelerate attrition in the U.S. Employees have until March 24 to consider the offer. Those who accept will leave the company by June 30th. Non-executives who take the deal would receive one month of pay for each year with the company, up to a maximum of 12 months, along with COBRA health insurance coverage, a prorated performance bonus, and outplacement services. Executives are eligible to receive base salary, incentives, COBRA insurance, and outplacement services. The buyouts come a week after GM cut what it called a small number of salary jobs for performance reasons. Dealers surveyed by Cox Automotive expressed more optimism about the coming three months. That's after surprisingly strong sales in January that followed three quarters of declining expectations. The U.S. consumer continues to prop up the economy despite high interest rates and stubborn inflation. And Cox Automotive chief economist Jonathan Smoke says while auto sales are slow by historical standards, the sales pace has improved early this year. They see hope that this year isn't going to turn out as awful as the mojo seemed to be late last year, and they see a path to that. Effectively, it's still a fantastic time to be a franchise dealer. But Smoke says... Dealers' outlook is still nowhere near the enthusiasm they carried for most of the past three years. The growing number of electric vehicles being serviced at dealerships has led to the first decline in service satisfaction in 28 years. That's according to the 2023 J.D. Power U.S. Customer Service Index study. Satisfaction with service declined two points this year to an average of 846 out of 1,000. Lexus, which had no full electric vehicles last year, ranked the highest overall in dealer service satisfaction for the second straight year. Among mass market brands, Mitsubishi ranks the highest in dealer service satisfaction, followed by Mazda, Buick, and Subaru. The study finds that overall EV owner customer service satisfaction is 42 points lower than internal combustion vehicle owner satisfaction. Recall rates are almost double with EVs, and service advisors' relative lack of EV knowledge contributes to lower satisfaction numbers. And meanwhile, Nissan says it's laser-focused on improving the quality of its EVs and thinks it can do so while also driving down price tags. 
Nissan is planning a next-generation electric powertrain lineup that will debut in 2026. The automaker's executives say new technology will allow it to achieve price parity between its internal combustion offerings and its e-powered hybrid offerings in 2026. And it thinks it can achieve parity between its full electric and gasoline-burning vehicles by 2030. The advances will give Nissan an integrated powertrain unit that is 10% smaller in size and costs 30% less to produce. It will be used across full electric offerings and e-powered vehicles, replacing the patchwork of different powertrains that Nissan currently uses. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, GM offering buyouts to most of its salaried employees. Is this a way to balance out the checkbook? Yeah, you know, I'm still kind of puzzling through a lot of this. Uh, clearly, Mary Barra has information and insights uh, that I don't have. She's not only the CEO of General Motors, she's the chair of the business roundtable. And, you know, it's a smaller market. GM's market share isn't what it used to be. Maybe there's some right sizing that has to go on. But I've been around this town long enough to know that in the years when there's union negotiations, there's often white collar job cuts earlier in the year. Companies like to show that that there's sacrifice being made across the board, that everyone's pitching in. Uh, it's not that they're asking the going to be asking the UAW to take a pay cut or to you know close factories necessarily, but if they're coming in asking for big raises, it helps to be able to show, hey, we're not taking big raises, and in fact, uh, we've had to cut some jobs. So that could be part of what's at play here. Interesting. Coming up. Dealers and automakers are finding themselves on opposite sides of debates at state capitals around the country. We'll hear what they're fighting about next on Daily Drive. Across the Hendrick Automotive Group, each store had a different reconditioning process. They started looking for a solution that would help them standardize their processes, give them actionable information, and ultimately drive efficiency. Knowing they needed to bring together all pieces of their operation to cut cycle times down to their goal of three days, they chose Recontract. Chris Little, Vice President of Variable Operations, explains why having the tools to measure your recon process gives you what you need to manage it more effectively. Everyone knows speed uh, to the front line uh, equates to more turns, which helps the overall company do better in terms of parts service and inventory bias. And so uh, when you can really take the time to measure and manage that uh, and perfect that, uh, you're going to increase your turns, you're going to increase your gross profit, and you're really just going to increase the amount of used cars you can sell uh, because you're getting them out on the front line. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Things are getting tense between franchise dealers and legacy automakers over evolving sales models and vehicle service work. Those debates are emerging as key issues in state legislatures across the U.S. this year. Several state dealer associations are backing legislation to amend franchise laws that govern the relationship between dealerships and the automakers whose brands they sell. The issues run the spectrum. Our own Lindsay Van Hulley and Audrey LaForest have been reporting on those tensions for us at Automotive News. I caught up with Lindsay in Northern California and Audrey in Washington, D.C. Lindsay Van Hulley, welcome back to Daily Drive. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me. And Audrey, welcome back yourself. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you two had a front page story on this week's automotive news about legislation in a number of states over auto dealer franchise matters. Lindsay, what are some of the trends that we're seeing in these uh, in these legislatures? Yeah, you know, I've been following this 
on and off for a couple of years, first kind of on on the retail team, you know, covering dealers and some of the issues that were emerging. And a few years ago, a lot of the things that I was seeing were related to efforts to try to prevent direct-to-consumer startup manufacturers of electric vehicles from bypassing dealerships. And, you know, since then, there's been more and more issues that have been emerging that kind of look at the relationship, but not just between EV startup manufacturers, but dealers and, and legacy automakers as well. And so, you know, a lot of what we're seeing this year really are kind of just a, kind of a, across the board, you know, everything from, you know, wanting to prohibit automakers from negotiating sales directly with consumers or even in, in cases like Virginia, you know, designating dealers as delivery agents. You know, there's legislation around warranty reimbursement rates and wanting to kind of line those up more with what retail customers pay. There's discussions about post-purchase subscription and software activation and how that's handled and what dealer's role is in that. And, you know, even looking at right of first refusal in dealership buy-sell transactions and wanting to eliminate, you know, that right for automakers to be able to kind of assign a transaction to a buyer of their choosing. So it's really a, a slate of issues kind of across the spectrum, but really getting that, as one dealer lawyer told me, you know, this idea of wanting to assert independence of the dealer from the manufacturer. Audrey, uh, the National Automobile Dealers Association has had some thoughts that they've shared <laughs> over the past year about automaker dealer relations. Uh, how do you see their role and what have they done to help coalesce uh, the thinking? They might help the state dealer associations navigate some of these issues at the state level, but they're primarily going to focus on what's going on at the federal level. However, I think it was last year, NADA did release a set of guiding principles on evolving franchise models that is sort of a starting point in a way for all of these state level issues that we're seeing emerge, especially as it relates to, you know, maybe pandemic induced changes in how vehicles are sold and also just technology and certain features that we're seeing in vehicles now. I don't know if you'll ask me about the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, but they obviously uh, represent automakers. And I know they've got some opinions on this too that we can get into. Well, let's break off one issue in particular, the right of first refusal. The automakers typically have the opportunity to effectively veto a sale of a store to a, a particular seller. What's going on on that front? And I guess maybe, Audrey, start with you. Has the Alliance weighed in on, on that issue? They've weighed in generally, kind of broadly related to right on first refusal. So their argument is that state franchise laws make it difficult to end a franchise contract with a dealer. So the automaker wants to know the dealer representing its brand and serving its community is a quote unquote, good one. They also say that right of first refusal helps automakers to diversify their dealer networks. As in to bring in more owners who would be people of color or women who have traditionally been pretty underrepresented among auto dealers. Lindsay, what are you hearing from dealers and uh, or from GM on, on right of first refusal? When I was talking with some lawyers that work with dealers on legislation in these kinds of cases, you know, what they'll say is, you know, that right of first refusal in there sort of has a chilling effect is kind of how they've described it. You know, that a dealer goes through the process, they they select a buyer of their choosing, and, you know, that there might be buyers who might be less likely to go through that process of all the things that they have to do to comply and kind of move through that process if there's a thought that the automaker might assign that sale to somebody else. What they'll say is that, 
you know, there's still plenty of room to evaluate a buyer's qualifications, you know, whether they have the right business experience, the financial ability to run the store. And, you know, there's still the ability to approve or, or reject a proposed buyer, but it puts the, the ability to select that buyer on the seller of, of the dealership. Some of the states have legislation addressing the automaker's role in selling to the consumer and securing uh, the dealer's place in that, whether it's you know direct sales and leases of vehicles, I guess online, or whether it's things like you know adding a subscription after the sale. Uh, you know, oh, I want to add uh, self-driving or automated driving assistance. I want. Uh, heated seats or, uh, you know, those kinds of things. What's happening there on the legislative front? I can speak to what's happening in New Jersey, at least. So there was a bill introduced in New Jersey that would essentially prohibit dealers or automakers from offering subscription services or charging a post-purchase fee for any vehicle feature that uses parts or hardware that are already installed on the vehicle at the time of purchase. So what that means is that it would apply to features like heated seats, which I know has been uh, controversial, potentially advanced driver assistance features, some safety tech features, but it would not apply to features like OnStar or in-vehicle Wi-Fi because those have an ongoing expense uh, potentially to a dealer or automaker or the third-party service provider. And satellite radio also would be one of those that is not prohibited to be added later or add the service to when the hardware is already installed. Correct, as I understand it, yes. And there's some variation in how the states are approaching this issue. And I think that kind of speaks to how early some of this is, you know, that it's still a very emerging technology and emerging practice. You know, automakers have sort of signaled that they have interest in pursuing this, you know, that there's opportunities for additional revenue after the sale. I mean, I think, you know, in in other places, I think Florida has some legislation that would, you know, compensate dealerships. You know, there's a certain provision that provides compensation for some of those activations. You know, in Massachusetts, their language talks about providing uh, information for consumers about any vehicle features that can be updated or changed and the cost to do that. And that, you know, if dealers do any work on any of those over the air, whether it's somebody, you know, there's a glitch or somebody just feels more comfortable if the dealer helps with that, that the dealer is compensated if they have any kind of role in that process. So I think there's a lot of different ways that this is appearing in legislation. So I think it definitely speaks to how early this still is. So that's going to be one I think that's going to be important to watch not just in the states where this is happening, but just to get a sense of does there become any kind of standard or consensus about, you know, the right way to kind of move forward, the way that the industries kind of move forward together on that. If that legislation takes place, that would seems like one that really does reflect sort of those uh, NADA guiding principles where uh, they say if it's uh, anything safety related, go ahead and do it. But if there's revenue attached, we want to be a part of it or include us in some way. In terms of that New Jersey bill too, there was an amendment that clarified that it would not prohibit like over-the-air software updates for fixing safety-related defects that falls under, you know, and it's a recall and whatnot. But I also wanted to add in terms of, you know, the the subscription post-purchase vehicle or feature activation discussion that... You know, the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, which represents the automakers, had said that a lot of these bills that are emerging in the states are premature 
because, you know, automakers are still maybe developing certain features or experimenting. They're like, my understanding of their argument is that they just don't want legislation to potentially block any future revenue streams. You know, they've also, I think they said in a letter to the New Jersey legislature that they could potentially see, you know, subscriptions as a way to improve manufacturing efficiencies and costs because down the road, the consumer decides whether or not they want to activate this feature and then they'll pay whatever that manufacturing cost might be over a certain amount of time. It's not to say that they're doing that right now, but you know, that was one of the arguments that they brought to the table for it. Yeah, the automakers don't want to stifle innovation, have their innovation stifled, but you know, the dealers are playing defense and they don't want to allow something to become a standard practice that cuts them out and then try to fight their way in because they'll probably lose. Before I let you go, I want to make sure we touch on an ongoing issue with lots of layers of rhetoric around it. We could probably spend 10 minutes just talking about this, but it's the, the warranty reimbursement rates. Uh, something that's that's come up in a number of states and is a real uh, friction point between automakers and dealers. Uh, Lindsay, why don't you uh, start on that? What's cooking there? I'm going to give a shout out to Larry Valquette, who did you know an excellent deep dive into that just a few weeks ago. And if you haven't read that, I strongly encourage you know to to go look at that look at that piece because I think he really dives into the issue a lot deeper, I think, than we did at this point. But What's really happening is that there's, you know, just concern about, you know, warranty rates and and how they work. And, you know, this idea that the amount that automakers are reimbursing dealers have been, you know, just lower than what retail consumers pay. And and some some have kind of indicated that, you know, if, if a consumer is paying X, you know, three years and one day, you know, after they purchased it and somebody did that two years and 364 days, you know, it's still the same fix. It's still the same work. And in their mind, it didn't really make sense that that should be compensated any differently just because the automaker is the customer versus the retail customer being the customer. And some of it, I think, is inflation related, how they describe it, you know, wanting to make sure that, that technicians are compensated and then there, there's not a disincentive for technicians to not take warranty work because they're not going to you know, receive you know, a higher pay for it that they might get on a, on a retail job. The service area, it's highly leveraged. We see a lot of uh, dealers are backed up. They try, they're constantly trying to improve their throughput. And if they can only get paid by the automakers for a, a certain amount of time per each job, that might be less than it actually takes the tech to do it. Or if the hourly rate is significantly less than their normal operating rate, uh, that can be a real hindrance for them. But Audrey, the automakers uh, have kind of an argument that they shouldn't have to pay what everybody just showing up who has one or two cars that need to be fixed uh, would pay. Yeah, well, you know, the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, again, you know, they've argued that automakers already pay dealers the same rate for labor that dealers charge the retail public. And they say that some of these Proposals being pushed by the state dealer associations that if they were to be adopted, that it could result in an additional three to five billion dollars in warranty costs to automakers per year. 
So yeah, they push it back to the dealers and say that, you know, warranty work, the service work is already very highly profitable for them. Yeah, it sounds like they're not, you know, very supportive of what the the dealers are thinking here. Well, the the stakes are high. That's that's the I mean, it's billions of dollars and you think about, you know, 3 to 5 billion dollars, that's, you know, a couple of factories or multiple products uh, that could be developed and brought to market. You know, I think their argument in part is that because of the volume you know, as if they were a, a fleet, they would be able to negotiate lower rates. Although, of course, part of that's part of the problem. This isn't negotiated. The automakers decide what they're going to pay, and the dealers want to decide what they're going to pay. And finding the right balance has been a problem. But I think they do also have a good argument in that you don't need the same marketing costs for warranty work. Uh, the customer pretty much has to come to the franchise dealer. Maybe there's multiple franchisees in an area that you can choose from, but you're probably going to go to a franchisee. You're going to go to the one that's closest to your home or your office. Uh, So the marketing costs, the acquisition costs, whatever you want to call them, are less. So it's complicated. Probably one of those things that might be better handled through negotiation than legislation, but uh, here we are, or there they are, I guess. Yeah, and I think, you know, just... From the people that we spoke with for the story, that's kind of what a few people that, you know, had said in terms of, you know, some of these general themes that, you know, many of these bills should not be playing out in state legislatures. Maybe it's a conversation that the dealers and automakers need to have uh, more directly. It certainly seems like one, though, that's going to continue, I think, to be mindful of and to keep watching for because, you know, I was talking, I remember talking with, you know, some state dealer associations 20, early 2020 or so, I think. And and there was sort of talk that this was going to start emerging then. And then obviously the pandemic kind of diverted a lot of that attention away just because of the the more immediate, you know, kind of emergent issues that needed to be addressed. But, you know, it's certainly something that I think is going to continue to be an issue. And and I think we'll continue to see play out in state capitals. And so I think there's a lot more to come on this issue for sure. Lindsay Van Holy, Audrey LaForest, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. You can find Lindsay and Audrey's reporting on these issues on the front page of this week's edition of Automotive News or at autonews.com. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer, as well as our own John Hutter, Miranda Dunlap, and Hans Greimel for their help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on proposed changes to state franchise laws, manufacturing, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.